Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is The Art of Awesome, episode number 103. You know, I started to kind of zero in on Kyle Ash, and it wasn't just me, it was Charlie and I. We were both, you know, Charlie was was definitely obsessed with with the Sangpo in particular, and and um and the Himalayas as a whole, but Kailash became super interesting because it was just the center of the universe for, you know, seven religions. It's, it's a very powerful place. It's, um, it's in the Western, you know, Western part of Tibet. Um, and it's, it's such a different sort of peak in that it like sits adjacent to the Himalaya. So it kind of just sits out by itself. And the mythical lore and the history and the ring around the bottom that creates the four rivers that flow in the four cardinal directions is just something that like captured my imagination. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to the Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. My goal is to share with you stories, knowledge, and inspiration as we continue on the journey together, searching for that secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to The Art of Awesome. I am your host, Nick Troutman, and this is the show where we search for that secret sauce to success and the difference between the average and the awesome. Today is Monday, which means we've got another deep dive interview, and today's interview truly is awesome as I got to speak with a childhood hero of mine, uh, a hero of mine in the sport of kayaking, and someone who just truly has an inspiring story. Today, I got to talk with Scott Lingren all about his life, the expeditions that he has done, the film and documentary that just came out with Rush Sturges called The River Runner. You can go check it out on Netflix right now if you haven't seen it. I highly encourage you guys to check it out. But we also dive deep into some of his vulnerabilities as we talk about his diagnosis with a brain tumor and the realizations that that had on his life, his career, and everything that comes with that. So this is truly an inspiring conversation, uh, something that I very much am excited to share with you guys as Scott's story is is unique. It's It's a true story and it has so many of these vulnerabilities and life lessons that can be implemented in anybody's life, no matter what hard times you might be going through, uh, whether it be something as severe as, as a brain tumor, or it could be anything that, that's going on in your life. Uh, Scott truly just shares some thought-provoking advice, as well as many amazing stories um, from some of the greatest expeditions that we've seen in our sport of kayaking. So again, if you haven't seen the film, The River Runner, go out onto Netflix, check it out. Uh, big props to Scott for sharing this vulnerability with the world. Big props uh, and hats off to Rush Sturges and his crew for editing and really just tying this whole story together with the heartthrobbing story that it really is. Um, and yeah, I'm very excited to share the conversation uh, with you. So let's wait no longer and jump right into it. Here is Scott Lindgren. Well, first off, uh, Scott, thank you so very much for joining me and welcome to the Art of Awesome podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. Super stoked to be here, bud. Cool. Well, Scott, you have done uh, just so much in the sport of kayaking. You've done some of the biggest expeditions in our sport. Uh, probably most famously known, uh, the Yarling Sang Po River. And you've also just, you founded the, the Scott Lingren Production Company and made, you know, all sorts of amazing films, big ones like the Sang Po, Burning Time, Black Book. Uh, Burning Time was one of my favorites when I was kind of really getting into the sport. Um, and then you've also, as of recently, just had pretty much your whole life documented um, by Rush Sturges with a film that just released on Netflix, The River Runner. Um, 
And, and yeah, it's just an incredible story of your entire life, of all of your paddling. Um, and for anybody who hasn't seen it, we're going to be talking all about it. So definitely maybe pause here and go back and watch it on Netflix. Um, otherwise, uh, be forewarned that we're probably going to talk about some of the points that, that'll come out in the movie, um, including just the phenomenal battle that you have, including, uh, including your, your brain tumor and, and different things like that. Um, but let's kind of start off a little bit back closer to the start and kind of just for anybody who hasn't seen it or for more of a recap for the people that have seen it, can you kind of just tell us a little bit about how you started into paddling in the first place? Um, I actually got into kayaking through rafting. I was, um, I moved into this uh, little town called Rockland, California and two doors down on the same street there was uh this guy doug stanley and roger lee and those guys were raft guides and that was sort of my first sort of introduction to the river and then uh not long after you know jumped in the kayak and and yeah started kayaking yeah what what was it about just rafting in the river that really kind of maybe drawn to you or or just like connected with you i mean obviously it, in the documentary and stuff like that, it, it kind of just talks a little bit about um, your childhood and, and maybe, you know, being in some, some rough parts and stuff like that. Was it something about the, the river in particular that really just like had a draw or was it just the excitement and something new? No, I think it really sang to, to me for sure. Um, I, you know, my brother and I grew up sort of moving around a lot all throughout California. And definitely the outdoors was something that was introduced at a very early age. Um, and, you know, the river definitely for both my brother and I um, allowed us to put energy into something positive instead of something negative. Right. And we both just, you know, connected with both just the mountains and the rivers and, and oceans. And, you know, we, it was all encompassing. That's, that's amazing. And, and you also, I mean, again, throughout the film, you, you talk about how you kind of really from there got into, into paddling instead of just rafting in, in the sense that it's more of that sports car, um, esque. And then obviously from there all started carrying around the camera and, and really, I guess that was the birth of, of Scott Lingren Productions um, and kind of just documenting the adventure along the way. Is that kind of how that started or, or where, like, how did the film part really start for you? It, it actually all started, um, you know, a lot of people don't really, I didn't make my first kayak film until I was about 25 years old. Okay. And I had already spent, you know, four or five years in the Himalayas at that point. Um, and I was more, you know, at, at, during those days too, there was really no such thing as being a sponsored paddler. It didn't really exist. Um, Team Teva hadn't really existed at that point. Events were sort of in their infancy um, in the early days, as long as, you know, as long as, or as kayaking as well. And so um, we, you know, it wasn't until I got, probably my third or fourth year in the Himalayas, we found this thing called the Tuliberry in Western Nepal. And Charlie and I kind of sent out these proposals and try to get some folks interested in making a film over there. And we really kind of fell short. And we finally ended up getting a proposal in the hands of this guy, Roger Brown. And he's just um, probably one of the unsung filmmakers in, in whitewater history. Um, you know, he filmed the first descent of the Stikine. He was, um, filmed Black Adar on the Alsac and the Susitna. And, um, he grabbed a hold of the proposal and, and wanted to make a film. And so in 1994 or 95, we, we all went over and, and shot this film for American Adventure Productions called Adventure Quest. And, that was sort of my first big introduction to film and film production. And I had already been kayaking for six years at this point. I hadn't really had any sort of opportunities. And while we were on that expedition, Roger 
handed me a video camera because he just wasn't able to get down to the river. And that was sort of my first exposure to film and filmmaking. And um, the film ended up going to Banff and ended up doing really well. And the following year, um, Mark Hayden and I um, picked up a video camera and we kind of shot this little six minute piece. And that's kind of when it, that's, that's when the birth of um, Driftwood Productions and Good to the Last Drop and and, and, and that was in 1995. Wow. And, and, and so there was an opportunity. I think we were also inspired a little bit by, you know, at the time, what Gavir was doing with Cavu Day and Adventure Quest. I think that there was, um, you know, that was sort of the first two films out of, say, the 70s and 80s that really um, sort of grasped what was going on in kayaking at the time. And, and, I kind of helped out a little bit with with that, and and Dan was actually involved with Driftwood Productions at one point in the very early stages of of making that first film, and yeah, we just kind of made that first film, and I kind of feel like there's a lot of luck involved there. You know, we we definitely uh, were in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing. Um, the sport was growing tenfold. I think, you know, boat design was a huge factor back in those days. It seemed like every time a new boat was coming out, we were, the sport was growing like tenfold. You know, we were able to just, you know, uh, advance everything so quick in, in, in the 90s. And, and, and it was kind of like the golden era of kayaking there for a hot minute. I'm sure you remember some of that. You were kind of on the tail end of it. Yeah, I, I've kind of, I kind of feel like I was uh, I got into it in the early two thousands. Um, so I, I I definitely a lot of your films were a huge inspiration when I was getting into paddling. But there was definitely a, a whole era before me for sure, uh, and and that big boom that we saw in paddling and and some of the designs in the early yeah, days. There's multiple was... multiple eras, you know, like even the Lars Holbeck, Chuck Stanley. Um, Dave Mamby, Mick Hopkinson, Jerry Moffitt, like all of those guys. And, and I'm mostly talking the river running stuff here, the expedition style yeah. kayaking. It's mostly what I was primarily focused on, um, you know, throughout uh, my, kayak, my, my time spent in a kayak. But, um, you know, the hist that's what always drove me was the, the history um, of exploration and, and traveling down rivers and exploring new rivers. That was... Um, the motivating factor for me. I, I felt like that's what sang to me the most was, was always about traveling down rivers. I, I struggled a lot, especially in the early days with the freestyle scene a little bit, you know, I really thought that there was this huge disconnect for what was going on with freestyle in the early days. And it wasn't until, you know, Corn and Fisher and, and, and those guys really started to change the face and and open it up on on bigger features and bigger waves and 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 that sparked an interest but in, in the early days and the small holes and stuff like that i just thought it was a such a big contrast to what river running and expedition kayaking was all about and and yeah yeah i mean it, even even to this day freestyle and and expedition obviously are, are two very different sects of, of kayaking for sure um, and, and attract different types of paddlers too. And, and not trying to say one is, is necessarily better than the other. They're just very different. Yeah. 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 Well, so back in those days, it was interesting because freestyle kayaking was where all of the money was at. You right. know, we, as you know, the sport was growing a bunch, the, the industry was pushing, um, the events and, and the, the competitions and and that's where they were able to get numbers with people and stuff like that and so a lot of the sponsorship dollars in the early days and so I was I was maybe a little bit bitter in the sense that I had to work with it a lot because you know I wanted to you know basically travel the world and run rivers and and freestyle was a part of that and so uh, a love hate maybe I, I have nothing against it I love I love the idea of uh, training and I love the idea of introduction with with freestyle and, and especially with you know the big wave stuff I, I you know I've always been a huge fan of that 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 to me is where it should have always been right from the beginning yeah 
The interesting part about that is, is whether or not there's been a shift where I would almost say that it's nowadays almost the opposite where the expedition and the waterfall attraction is probably where more of the, you know, sponsorship money and stuff like that is at where I just, I think that for most people is way more appealing nowadays than, um, than maybe freestyle, even including the big wave stuff. But, uh, yeah, I think finally we're on the right track here. I, I think the event, I mean, it was something that I screamed and tried to organize back in the day on, on multiple occasions, but like, the downriver extreme stuff to me is where it's at. You know, if we're going to, if we have a shot at bringing in spectators and organizing an event that's watchable on television, I think that that, that has always been my take. I've always felt like there's, especially, you know, the North Fork is obviously amazing. That event's obviously amazing. Little White event is obviously amazing. The Green is is awesome as well. And and they're super watchable. Right. Um, whereas like a freestyle event, a little small feature after you've seen one or two rides, it's just kind of, you know, repetitive. And so I just, you know, I like the idea of it being timed and not judged. That's the other thing that was amazing with it but i agree the river running community is alive and thriving and it's kind of moved in a direction that i had always hoped it it would move in and dreamed of it you know it's 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 what it's all about man it's 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 uh it's about hanging out on the river being on the river traveling down a river um you know being present i think is really important and when, when you're on an expedition and you're doing whether it be class three or class five it's um you're present and, and I, and I, and I love that. And you're connected. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned how you were in Tibet before you even got into to filmmaking and, and, you know, holding a camera and stuff like that. And so throughout the, the film, the documentary, um, the river runner, you, you talk a lot about running these four rivers off of, uh, Mount Kailash and, and how that, that was essentially almost like your life's work or, or this major goal, idea dream where did that really originate and where did that come from or, and kind of like how did that all play into before filming before the Sangpo, all that kind of stuff i you know the first time i went to asia was i think it was 19 and uh i from the very first trip that i went over on i heard about the Sangpo, um and it wasn't probably a year later that, you know, I started to kind of zero in on Kailash and it wasn't just me. It was Charlie and I, we were both, you know, Charlie was, was definitely obsessed with, with the Sangpo in particular and, and, um, and the Himalayas as a whole, but Kailash became super interesting because it was just the center of the universe for, you know, seven religions. It's, it's a very powerful place. It's, um, it's in the Western, you know, Western part of Tibet. Um, and it's, it's such a different sort of peak in that it like sits adjacent to the Himalaya. So it kind of just sits out by itself and the mythical lore and the history and the ring around the bottom that creates the four rivers that flow in the four cardinal cardinal directions is just something that like captured my imagination um, at a very, very early age. And then, you know, we started to look at the maps and you start to look at the recipe of what it was going to take to pull it all off. And, and at that time, you know, as I was kind of traveling through the Himalayas and running rivers and stuff, it really was the style that I was um, attracted to. Um, that's kind of what opened the door for the sort of onslaught that happened in California in that taking that mentality from the Himalayas and bringing it home to where you're not afraid to walk in, you know, 10 or 15 miles for something, you know, in the early days, I think on the first attempt of the Tuliberry, Charlie and I spent something like 10 days trying to walk into the Tuliberry and basically got to the bottom gorge and realized it was too high and paddled out. Wow. Um, so it was, you know, it was those style of trips that really um, sang to me. And, and so, yeah, I just, once the sort of 
first ascent of the Tuliberi went down and a few more, you know, years sort of spent in Asia at that point. Um, the goal really for Mount Kailash and the Four Rivers really materialized. And, and it was long before I'd ever made a film um, or, and, you know, Bit of the Last Drop was our first in 95, 96 or something like that. And yeah. Wow. And so obviously the, in my opinion, it may, it may or have a different opinion. I would think that the, the, of the four rivers that the Sang Po was probably that, you know, the, I don't know if you'd call the jewel, but definitely looks like the hardest one logistically to kind of pull off. And being that you guys did that first ascent and, and everything, deepest gorge in the world, all that kind of stuff. Um, I guess, first off, would you say of the four that that, that was kind of the crux point or, or am I mistaken? No, I, I think, you know, I think there's a couple things. I mean, the Indus obviously is um, super formidable. Um, I, I guess the difference there is that if the Indus was, say, in the middle of nowhere without a road next to it, I think what makes the Indus so unbelievable and so um runnable is the fact that there is a road next to it and and you have that ability to bail and right. you can initially you know you can just jump straight up to the road and and, and depending on where you're in the river within two to three hours you can be in a major sort of town or city whereas like with the same po we went in with a 45 day self-support sort of mentality and 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 then you know, the, the, the other thing too, is that on the Indus, I really feel like you could push the sport of running big water, at least for us on the same po. And, and I think the kids could go in there and do a lot better job than what we did. I felt like we were in there hanging on and just trying to stay alive. Um, versus where like on the Indus they're especially with a bunch of the kids, they're not really hanging on. They're just basically like, full throttle and and there's there's a little different vibe you know when you have a road next to a run versus when you're you know and and also too you're going into a zone that is impenetrable in a lot of in a lot of places and um you know something i've talked a lot about in the past was like trying to figure out the recipe um to get in to do the same poke because in the early days there wasn't really maps and so we really um you know, from the very first time we started talking about it, actually going and making the first attempt, there was, we had no idea what we were getting into. And, and, and if you were to take, say, I've always used the Stikine. I love the Stikine because I think it's just such a perfect example or specimen to kind of gauge other rivers from, you know? And so you know, the, the Stikine, I think, is like 60 feet a mile. I think Site Z's like 120, 120 feet a mile or something like that. And so yeah. I always felt like Site Z was runnable um, as a kid. You know, we, even Rob Lester on the first first uh, descent in 1981, he, um, you know, he came really close to running it back in those days. And then the other wow. thing, too, is that the rapid has changed a lot. And what... I feel like we had in the nineties doesn't, didn't look nearly as good as what has happened over the last little bit, but also too, it looks like it's changed now. It's not as runnable and, and everything in there has changed, but yeah. the, the gradient to volume ratio was really the, the recipe as to like what we felt like was, was runnable um, and what could be mimicked maybe somewhere else if the geology was right. And the same Poe, um, blew those numbers straight out the door. I mean, the same post starts out at like 80 feet a mile and then it moves to about a hundred feet a mile. And then just above rainbow falls and hidden falls, it, it gets into the, like that 180, 200 foot per mile. And, you know, you start looking at big volume rivers and you start looking at 180, 200 feet per mile and the math just doesn't add up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, you know, it's going to be off the scale. And then the question is volume wise, like how low does it go? And, you know, the same Po parallels the Himalayas for someone that, you know, for something like 600 miles. And then it makes a big right hand turn. And by the time it hits the Bay of Bengal, it's the sixth largest river in the world. And, um, 
it's a beast. And so, and then you're going into probably at that time in the nineties, there's only maybe like the poles, maybe the bottom of the ocean and maybe Eastern Tibet were probably three of the most in space, probably three of the most unexplored zones uh, left on the planet in wow. my opinion. And wow. so that, and, 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 and on our first attempt, we were probably about a month late. Uh, this is in 1997, 98. And, um, the river had already started to come up and, and we got there and, you know, I don't know what the flow was probably like, I don't know, 50, 100, 200,000 CFS impossible to really tell. And the magnitude was so much bigger and so much more powerful than what we thought, you know, when, when we had, you know, convinced ourselves through the handful of images that we had seen over the years that it was maybe more runnable than we thought. And then, you know, it became a huge factor as to whether or not does, does the river even get low enough? And then going out and trying to sell that idea that like, look, we need a ton of money to go pull this thing off. And there's no guarantee that the river even gets low enough for us to be able to run it. And so there was just obstacles there. And um, then it's, you know, politicized. And then you had the drowning from the Walker crew. And then you had the Japanese drowning, which most people, a lot of people don't realize there was a Japanese attempt that was uh, in the nineties where they put in on the Posang Po and, you know, one of the members got pushed into the middle of the river and was never seen again. Wow. And so it was just, and then you have, you know, probably, I mean, there's an argument. I think the deepest river Canyon in the world is, is the Kaligandaki potentially over in Nepal. Um, it, it had been pointed out to me, but I think this, the Sangpo Gorge is right there. I mean, you have Namchi Barwa, which is a 25,000 foot peak. You have Jala Puri, which is a 20, just under 25,000 foot peak. And it's basically, you know, dropping from about 10,000 feet down to the Bay of Bengal. You know, it's, it's, it's such a beast. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was just no maps. Yeah. We didn't, you know, we didn't really have any sort of clue um on those first attempts and then uh we got a hold of uh some satellite images from a demilitarized um satellite imaging company and those were this was all pre-google um maps and all that stuff but yeah we were able to sort of take our first glimpse into the gorge and 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 it was when i got those maps i kind of had an idea i was like man we can move around in there and so, you know, once I felt that that sort of fact, you know, there was there was times where we were thinking that we would be trapped and, yeah. and not be able to move around. You know, it's kind of your one of the bigger fears in expedition kayaking is moving into something and being pushed too far and then not being able to get out. And once we saw the satellite images, we were really able to see um, that we could move around and that then and, and that um, that if the river got low enough you know, we had a pretty good shot at pulling this thing off. Wow. And, um, yeah. Yeah. So, so as one of the, the deepest gorges in the world and, and still arguably maybe the, the biggest expedition in, in our sport of kayaking. Um, I would, there's, there's lots of expedition kayaking, okay. uh, out there that I have so much respect for, 100%. man. Like 100%. the first descent of the Yangtze, the first descent of the Stikine, the first descent of the Indus. I mean, there's so many um, heroes out there from back in the day. Even the you know Petrie Kalimsky and his first descent of the Amazon, and yeah. and um, uh, there's the, the, and and that's what's crazy about expedition kayaking in general is that it is um, for whatever reason the climbing world is articulate and they are um, really good about writing books and documenting uh, routes and, um, and, and, and was worth kayaking. We're pretty much uh, a campfire story. I mean, it's, everything it's so funny, yeah. is straight up just a campfire story. I mean, nobody's managed 
I mean, there's a handful of things out there that have been written and, you know, obviously the film archive has developed now to where I think most of the education is coming from YouTube these days, it seems like, but yeah. Um, yeah, we just, it just, yeah, it's just been such a small community of people. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know, so, man. So I guess looking at, I'll retract my statement in, in saying that it, it was one of the biggest expeditions of the sport, but but still a massive feat in its own right, the Sangpo expedition. And kind of looking back now years later, uh, and, and you even mentioned in the film that, that there were many and constant aspects that, that would threaten the whole expedition throughout the whole journey of it. Looking back, do you see one single part where you're like, this was the hardest thing of, of organizing the whole expedition? Or is it hard to kind of just put your finger on it that way? At that point, um, I mean, the Singpo was definitely a beast in organizing an expedition. At that point, I had already had um, an insane amount of experience organizing expeditions. And so... I just, um, and, and obviously the level that I had to go to, to get into the Sengpo, because there's this sort of government political component that plays a huge part in getting in there. And, um, so, uh, but that, that's the case in traveling anywhere in the Himalayas or anywhere in the world for that matter, there's always a component uh, at, you know, I always used to call it the Asia factor that, you know, the Africa factor where you just get slam dunked with stuff that you don't see in a first world country, you know? And so you, you end up having to, um, you know, just adjust and, and stay focused and be passionate and know that, if you keep pushing on the gas, hopefully eventually something will come out the other side. And so it, and with the same Po, that's what it was because after the Lip Walker accident and National Geographic trip went in there, the, the Chinese government shut down the gorge. And, um, you know, I wasn't able to get back in there for almost four years, three, yeah, four years later wow. um, before things were able to like calm down. And, um, and I, and I really did it in, in such a different style than what those guys did it with. Those guys tried to self-support it. And I really felt like having a team and running like kayaks and having the ability to, to move around with like kayaks was the way to go. And, and, and I like the idea of spending 30 or 40 days in there. I, I, I like the idea of, of, of being in there for a significant period of time. Yeah. I mean, you, I don't know, doing any overnighters, I, I, I try to enjoy as much of it as, as possible. And, it, and I remember doing a, a couple of different trips with, with Ben Stokesbury. Um, and even we would try to do like, even in California, a couple of the overnighters where we'd try to rally him as fast as possible. And I'm like, man, I, I think I'd rather be in here for three days than try to like bust it out in a single day. Uh, there's just something about camping in the river. And I don't know, it's, 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 it's an amazing. Yeah, experience. I love both. I like going fast and I like going slow. Yeah. yeah. I get the I get like I love what Stukes and John Grace and those guys have done to sort of speed up, you know, the whole yeah. middle kings in a day sort of thing, you know. When 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 Grace called me up and was like, "Hey, we're going to try to do the middle Kings in a day. And I was like, why that's bananas. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and then he went and did it. And I was like, damn, that's amazing. Holy yeah. cow. Like, I can't believe, like, I don't know. It just kind of opened the brain. And, and that's, what's been amazing throughout the entire sort of journey in the sport. And especially in the last 30 years, it's just the evolution and, and, uh, and, and watching that and being part of it, it's just so grateful to have, um, to have any sort of acquaintance with, with the river and, and the community. It's, it's such a unique, um, group of people. Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah, there's so many people that, that have done, I guess, put, almost like their fingerprint on the sport in their own right. You know what I mean? In doing all sorts of different things. Um, exactly. Yeah. Everyone's has their own sort of 
you know, so grateful for the EJs and the Clay Wrights and, you know, that pushed it in ways that I had no interest in pushing, you know? And so, and it's, it's similar with, with films, you know, I always felt like films inspired. I was inspired by Warren Miller and yeah. the ski movies as a kid. And I grew up skiing and my brother was a professional skier. And so we were obsessed with Scott Schmidt when we were kids. And so, yeah, we just had always had that sort of interest in, in, and exploration and exploring. And, and I think my dad played a little bit of a part, you know, in that as yeah. well. He, he definitely took us and backpacking and skiing and, and yeah, was kind of an outdoors guy. That's amazing. So obviously out of the, the, the four rivers of, of Mount Kailash, we're talking probably the, the, the two biggest with the Sang Po and, and the Indus a little bit and, and kind of going back and forth on those in between you paddling those two, it was what, eight years, 12 years? How many years was it between the Sang Po and when you went and did the Indus? Oh, well, Sang Po was in 2002. That was the last river. Okay. It, was, it was almost 20 years later. 20 years. Oh, gosh. I was way off on that. Wow. Yeah, so Sang Po, the Carnally went down in like 98, and then the uh, uh, Sutledge went down in 99, and then the Sang Po went down in 2002. So, wow. and then the Indus was 2017. So 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 15 years after. And, and, and that was, yeah. I mean, I had walked away from the Indus and um, I was set to go back and I was just going to go with annual and Mike Dawson. And, you know, those guys had gone over um, in the movie. It's a little bit confusing, but uh the year that annual went over, he went over, I tried to go over the first time and they weren't allowing Americans into the zone at the time. Interesting. And so annual went over with Dawson and his brother and they went and did a couple laps on, um, on the Indus. And then he came back and they actually called me and was like, Hey, I think we figured out the visa to come back the following year. And so that's when the, the, the plan was sort of made. And so then I just started, casually going about getting in shape to go do the Indus. And it wasn't until about three weeks um, before we left, Rush gave me a call. And he's like, Hey, I'm thinking about coming over and doing like a 10 minute YouTube video. And I was like, Sweet. <laughs> you know, like if you want to come and do that, you should, you know, come over and, and do that. And so when we went to go do the Indus, it was going to be a 10 minute YouTube video. And, it was, you know, Rush had kind of worked it out in his mind that it was going to be something like the history of, of kayaking and that maybe we were going to do a film about sort of the history of kayaking and how California played a role in that. And, and um, yeah, where the film actually ended up and where it started is two very, very different places. And, and the film evolved over three and a half years. And I think that there was a decision that was made about halfway through as to like, who do you really want to make a film for? You know, do you want to make a film for the community, the whitewater community, or do you want to try to make a film for a broader audience? And I think Rush was at that point in his filmmaking career to where he really wanted to make a film for a broader audience. And at that point he had, he'd always had my trust, but we had become a lot closer and I trusted him. Yeah. And so that, that, that allowed me to, um, tell the whole story yeah. and not hold anything back and, and trust that the, that, that Rush and, and Aiden and Thayer and everyone else that helped make that thing happen was, would, would have my back in the end and that they would see what I was trying to convey. That was something that I was really struggling with in the beginning was uh, trying to um, bring an emotional awareness and an emotional IQ to the production. And then how do you do that? Because I had no interest in making a film about myself. I wanted right. Rush to, you know, I didn't see a cut of the film until about two years in. And wow. so I, um, I, and, and that's a tricky thing, right? I've made so many films in my life and I've always controlled that 
um, aspect. And then all of a sudden now I'm vulnerable in front of the camera and then I'm trusting um, someone that they're, they're going to make um, a piece that's, that's true and honest. And that's all I cared about uh, in the end. And once I got over, once I let go of my ego and what I thought I was and what I thought my identity was, um, that allowed me to just kind of sit back and, and it's pretty wild, man. Like you watch the film and you watch my interview and I basically, there are cuts in there with audio cuts, but the interview was something like 10 hours or 12 hours. And I basically like sat and did the whole thing in one swing and then wow. walked away. So wow. it's pretty trippy. You said, I mean, I had done two other sit down interviews, but they didn't use those interviews and they were done at a later time. They might've used little snippets and stuff, but the main bulk of the interview was in one sit down. And that was, you know, over three and a half years ago. And so you go and you pour your heart out in a 10, 12 hour interview, you walk away and then come back three and a half years later and you see this thing and, um, you know, you feel vulnerable and I feel, uh, definitely, um, it's weird. It's super weird. Yeah. Yeah. And it's well, felt, I mean, all my friends and my family that have participated in stuff, I think they, they felt, um, it as well. And, and, and I'm just so proud of Rush and like everything that he put into it, you know, he put his heart and soul into it and, and, and it's a tricky thing to take your ego out of a film and then hire people to come in and help take that film to the next level. And Rush had the humility to do that. And him bringing in Aiden Haley and bringing in Thayer Walker, you know, Aiden's an editor and Thayer's a writer and Thayer's an incredible writer. And, and he really understood my story. And um, once the outside article sort of dropped, um, Rush read that and, you know, we had a conversation and he's like, I'm thinking about bringing Thayer on. I was like, that's a really good idea. And yeah. boom, you know, that's kind of when the film went from sort of endemic sort of whitewater community film to something that we were going to take a stab at and try to, you know, open, open it up to a broader audience. And I think Rush has done that. I mean, the response has been overwhelming, to be honest. I just can't believe you know with these things it's always so tricky you know when you drop a film you know what you think is amazing or what you think is is a really good film I've been wrong more than I've been right on so many occasions with these things you know you think you see something that connects with you and and you think it can transcend and then you throw it out there and it ends up on the back page you know so and and for Rush to just once we kind of had rough cuts and we started to send it out, it was pretty unbelievable the responses that, you know, we started to get from within and, you know, most of it was positive, but we also had a lot of, you know, harsh feedback and Rush navigated that like a gangster. I mean, he didn't take offense to any of it. And when the more aggro somebody got about what they didn't like, the more we kind of tuned in and tried to figure out, okay, well, if you take their intellect and you take their ego out of what they're trying to say and actually pick up on what they're trying to convey, then, um, then maybe there's something there. And, and, and that you have to be in a certain place in your life to be able to take that feedback and that criticism and then grow from it and then create and, 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 and do, you know, and to just to navigate that it's, it's such a challenging, incredible journey and, and Rush did that for three and a half years. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, my hat is so off to that kid and so much love for him. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess it, like what you said, just the, the feedback um, after it has gone out on Netflix, so many people have, have watched it now. And, and I think a lot of people have both thoroughly enjoyed it, but it, it truly is this inspiring story. I mean, I, I had seen um, an early version or not an early version. I had, I'd seen the final version earlier before it had released uh, this spring. And then I watched it again, actually this morning, right before this interview with, with, uh, with my kids and, and my mom, 
Um, my kids being, you know, like just barely getting into the sport of kayaking and my mom who's been around it, but has never been a paddler. And it, it truly is an inspiring story that I think, um, goes way beyond just the paddle sports. And, and I think even beyond just adventure sports as a whole. And, and, uh, I, I just feel like there, there, it, was it difficult at all for you to be vulnerable and just kind of open up and share that full story with people? Because I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of personal stuff. Yeah. It took a lot of work for me to get to a space to be able to, to, to do that. Um, I think once I, you know, a, a huge sort of revelation for me was with my tumor, you know, I, up until that point had thought that um, I could control the outcome to most everything. And that's a very um, heavy place to be when you try to control the outcome to everything in your life. And, 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 it, and it's a roller coaster. If you're, if you're trying to control the lows and you're trying to control the highs there, you're, and your ego's in the way of that, it becomes really, really difficult. And once I was sort of diagnosed with the brain tumor, and then once I realized that my brain tumor, no matter how hard I tried, wasn't necessarily going to go away, I, I was able to just step back and ask myself, what do I actually have control of? And I don't actually have control of anything at that point. And so showing up without ego, without intellect and showing up more with heart. Um, that really changed the perspective and allowing me to sort of start talking about it. But there was a very sort of powerful moment um, early on where I was invited to First Ascents um, they're a nonprofit organization. It's a cancer adventure program for young adults. Yep. And I got up and spoke in front of some folks there. And it was sort of my second attempt at telling my full story outside of being on camera. And I remember writing it out. I remember talking to Rush about it. And we were in the hotel room the night before. And he asked me if I was going to read it. And I said, no, I was going to just probably go out and just try to you know, to wing it. And anyways, I get up and I do this thing and um, the people within that community, it resonated and it really gave me so much freedom and strength to kind of see it uh, through in that so many people came up to me with a healing vibe in that what's so amazing about first ascents and, and, and this speaks true to all sort of anyone that's dealing with any sort of medical issue in that you are diagnosed, uh, you are essentially treated for a symptom. And in 90% of the cases you're kicked to the curb at that point. And so for me, it was a heavy moment when I came out of brain surgery and then all of a sudden I was completely on my own recovering from brain surgery. And that, that was a, a really heavy time in, in, in that realization that, okay, like I um, wholeheartedly don't really have control of anything, you know, like I'm as fragile as I've ever been. And I feel vulnerable and I feel weak. And it was the combination of that, the first ascents that really, and then trusting Rush um, that gave me the strength to be able to like, okay, I've got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to be as honest as I can possibly be. And um, yeah. And, and, and there's no, and, and I think the other thing that plays a huge factor in this is, is shame. You know, I looked at my tumor as a weakness. I didn't look at my tumor as a strength. And, you know, I didn't want anyone to know. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are struggling with cancer, struggling with tumor, sort of heavy diagnosis, injury, whatever it may be, 
that don't want people to know because they don't want to look down on, they don't want to be perceived as weak. And so that is in, in what happened with me. And I think what happens with a lot of other people is that they, when you back yourself into that corner, you isolate. And once you start to isolate, it becomes uh, a whole nother beast. Um, you know, it's tricky when they say, when, you know, you're in jail and you act out in jail, one of the things that they do is um, they isolate you. They put you in the hole, right? They know it's the, one of the most effective forms of torture known to mankind. They know that man doesn't like to sit alone. What would be heavier than that? And in my opinion, what's heavier than that is self-inflicted isolation, where you can see, think, feel, move freely, but you can't get out of bed and you don't want anyone to know. And a lot of people battle with that. And I think um, it was something that I struggled with a lot. And it wasn't until I realized my tumor was my greatest strength. It wasn't my, it wasn't my weakness. And that the, the uh, amount of um, learning that came from it and the amount of awareness that came from it really um, helped transform my thinking into a much healthier space. Wow. Well, I mean, honestly, uh, Scott, hats off to you, first of all, for, um, for sharing and, and, and opening up and allowing yourself to be vulnerable to, to share this truly incredible story because beyond your, you know, all your accolades within the sport of paddling, I, I think just sharing the hardships that, that we all go through and how to, how you've been able to overcome this is, is truly an inspiring story. And I think that everybody who watches the film feels that. And, and I think again, uh, hats off to rush for the, the editing and the whole team that, that kind of, um, was able to help bring that story together and really portray that feeling. Um, and, and again, everybody, if you haven't seen the film, I highly encourage you to go watch it. It, it very much is an inspiring true story that, that, um, it's a story that I think needs to be heard because everyone faces their own obstacles and hardships in life. Uh, and some people have, you know, everybody has their own version of it. Life is hard no matter who you are. And there's every, everybody has different versions of what a hardship or an obstacle might be. Um, and, and you were, you know, shared your journey and, and what you've gone through. And I think that alone helps a lot of people realize that maybe what they might be going through that they can get through it as well. What might be a piece of advice that you have for someone that is in a hard time, in a hard place, um, whether it be, whether it be cancer, whether it be abuse, whether, I mean, there's so many different versions of, of what a hard time and a hard place could be. Um, but what might be like a lesson that you've learned from your journey that you might be able to share with others that are in that hard place? Um, I, I don't know that there's one in particular lesson that I learned. I think it was a, um, a journey to awareness is the way I look at it. And I, um, once I sort of had awareness and I was able to compartmentalize behavior and not take my behavior that works on the river and drag that into other faucets of my life, um, that was the, um, that's when the, the healing really started to take place for me. And I feel, you know, one of the things that gave me strength in, in telling my story was that I am extremely lucky to get to where I'm at. And I don't take that for granted. And that, that, that alone gave me so much strength and that I just really feel that I got super, super lucky and that you couldn't script what happened. Um, and it was just like transpiring right before me. And I'm so lucky in the sense that I was able to actually have awareness and make those changes that shifted 
the way I think and thought. And, 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 and it really helps take a lot of those negative thought patterns and negative love patterns and allowed me to let go of them. And, and that's, that's a very tricky thing. And, and if anything, I hope that the book that I'm working on with there, and I hope that the film is my best answer to that in that, 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 that would be you know, learning through, I've always learned through other people's experiences. It's been my best form of learning. I've never been good at diving into the books or, or, you know, that sort of thing. I've always learned from experience. It's something that has worked the best for me. I, I never really wanted to learn things that um, I was forced to learn. I wanted to learn things that I was interested in as a kid and, and as an adult, I'm still the same way. Wow. So you may have uh, you may have done some foreshadowing on on this next question, but after you know film uh, finishing this film with Rush and and the, the documentary um, after completing the the four rivers off of Mount Kailash and, and essentially almost achieving this uh, whether it's a life's work or or a goal or a dream or however you would categorize that. I I don't know that there's any accolade in kayaking the four rivers, you know, like I I really don't, I don't know that there's an accolade there at all. I mean, for me, it was a personal journey and I was just, you know, something that got in my head at a very young age and it became a goal and I'm a goal oriented person. I think it's really important to write out your goals. And, and that just became this thing that was bigger than life for me, but the accolade there, you know, and I don't know that there is one really, to be honest. Yeah. And, and I, I too am a, a goal oriented person. And I think each of us have our own goals and, and achieving those is the accolade in itself where it's like, like what you said, we all have our own journey. Um, though now after completing that and, and checking that goal off, what might be next for you? And, and you kind of mentioned this, this book with their Walker that you're working on, um, but I guess like, yeah, what, what are your next goals or, or what's kind of next for you? That's, that's the, um, the biggest thing right now. Thayer and I are uh, probably 30 or 40,000 uh, words in on a 120,000 page book. And, and I'm so yes. grateful for him and everything that he's brought. He's an incredible writer. So really we're on lockdown for that. And then um, uh, two weeks ago, I went in for an MRI and I found out my brain tumor was growing again. And so I'm looking at another surgery here within the next year. Well, I, I wish you um, the best of luck with, with all of that. Uh, it's pretty, it was pretty unbelievable, man. The night before, or no, the three days before the premiere in Auburn, um, I was down in Santa Monica at, at my neurosurgeon and and uh, just going through an MRI and I hadn't had an MRI in probably like a year and a half. And so, you know, I'd always had sort of two things that I've been up against because my tumor is going to grow, you know, and it's in a really bad spot. And so, um, you know, the only way to mitigate with Western medicine is with either radiation or with uh, surgery. Um, and so with the radiation, especially being in my, brain if I started radiating radiating at this point like I probably wouldn't know my name when I'm 60 you know what I mean so yeah that wasn't really an option and so I, I've tried to stay away from it is and, and I have um and my doc that I'm working with seems to think a surgery is a better option than than going back and doing radiation I don't know what we're going to do at, at, at the moment but it's grown back to a big enough size at this point in the game to where I have to, I have to go deal with it again sometime probably in the next year, year and a half. Well, Scott, my, my hopes, prayers, and wishes all go out to you. Thanks. um, Believe it or not, the surgery is, is, I mean, it's a nine hour brain surgery. It's a heavy, heavy surgery, but, um, it's actually, uh, as far as surgeries go it, on the brain, it's, it's definitely um, has the least impact. They go actually through your nose. Okay. And so they don't actually crack your skull. When you start cracking your skull, it becomes a whole nother beast. And so um, it's still not to be taken lightly and it's still, 
a brain surgery that I'd rather not do. And I just spent the last three years of my life in an N of one study on alternative therapies to try to cure my tumor. And, and, uh, that MRI a couple of weeks ago was kind of like our pulse as to like everything that we'd been doing, if any of it had worked. And I do think it had, I do think a lot of the stuff that we're doing is working in the sense that typically with my style of tumor, you're having to deal with it with between two and three years after surgery. And I'm, I'm going to be seven years out of surgery come February 3rd. So wow, yeah, it, it's unfortunately, I had hoped when I first got the procedure that we were going to be five years down the road and that something scientifically would have come up to help kind of make this thing go away, but we're not quite there yet. And so. Well, I, I, again, I, I, I give you all that I can and, and I will, you know, certainly do some, some prayers for you and give you all the best luck that I can. Again, thank you so very much for, for sharing all of this with us, for, for your time and, and joining me today. I'm going to move us on to the next part of the show that I call the fire round and just ask a couple quick questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, Scott, do you have a favorite quote or a quote that you currently live by? Um, I don't know. I always... I've always signed things live life to the fullest, but <laughs> do I have, there's a quote at the beginning of the film, go watch the film. I like that. It's by Ernest Hemingway. I can't, I can't do it word for word, but at the beginning of the film, there's, it's something about, Oh, the world breaks everyone. And afterwards some are strong at the, the broken places. Yeah. So, no, it's, it's a powerful yeah, I, quote. Yeah. It's a powerful quote. I, yeah. Kind of, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I have one in particular quote that I live by. Do you have a favorite book or, or a current book that you're reading, Scott? One book that really helped me out a lot, especially with like the letting go and flow of life was uh, a book called the surrender experiment by Michael Springer. Um, I think that there's so much in there. He also has another book called the untethered soul. And both of those books are, amazing books and there's so much um that can be learned um from surrendering to the flow of life and um i think there's a lot of yoganon that preaches that and and writes about it but i think that michael really does a good job of articulating it in a way that a normal person without doing five years of meditation 10 hours a day can can pass along to someone and and it's been formative for me in so many different ways and in that you know the whole idea of letting go of control and not having control and surrendering and showing up with your heart it's a very thoughtful thoughtful message and it's a lovely book awesome i've heard of the the untethered soul and i've actually got it on my on my bookshelf but uh i'll have to check out that other one as well yeah the surrender experiment's a later it's a it's a I think the untethered soul was his first or second book. And then I think the, the surrender experiment is, is more is a later, later version. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, this last question is something that I ask everyone and uh, I, I'm not sure if, you know, through everything that you've gone through, if this is something that you've thought of more or less. Um, but I ask everyone if today was your last day on earth, and everything that you've done, all of all of the videos that you've made, Scott, all of the expeditions, all of the achievements and accolades were to go with you. And all that you were left with was a pen and paper, and you could leave three truths, three things to be true for your friends, for your family, for the rest of the world. What might those three truths be? Oh... Uh... I think I've covered a few of them, letting go, surrendering to the flow of life. Um, Realizing I couldn't control my tumor. And um, the river heals. I love that. I love that. Thank you so very much, Scott, for for all of that. And and I truly believe that the river heals. and, And I wish you 
the best with your healing process and many, many days out on the river to continue healing. Yeah, Nick, thanks for having me, man. So grateful. Awesome. Scott, something that I always try to do as much as I can on all of these podcasts when I have guests is, is I try to give back value as much as I can. So is there anything currently um, that you're focusing on that I might be able to help you out with or, or also possibly my listeners? Yeah. So my brother and I have a clothing company. It's called remotethreads.com. Um, we make basically a casual outdoor wear and it's awesome. Come check us out. We have like 40 different articles of clothing. Um, and then my girlfriend and I, we have uh, um, a campground ranch and um, we have cabins and people can come stay out on the ranch and hang out on the river. And, and uh, that's at the uh, consumenaysriverranch.com. That's amazing. Just keep a lookout for our um, book coming out in the next year with there. And that's pretty much what keeps me busy. Awesome. Well, I will definitely check out the ranch. I'm going to go online uh, and order some, some clothing right now, just as, as a thank you. Oh, man. don't do that. Just send me a list and I'll send you some stuff, but <laughs> no, no, no. I'd love, thank I'd love to send you a few things. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and every, everybody out there listening, I highly encourage you guys, um, check out everything Scott has going on. Go check out his clothing company, check out, um, the campground. And if you haven't, please go watch the film and share it with friends and family. It's truly an inspiring story. Um, for those of you that, or for those out there, sorry, Scott, that, that maybe want to continue following along your journey, what might be the best way for them to connect or follow along? Oh, I think Instagram is, I don't, I try not to pay too much attention to Facebook these days. I'm getting sucked back in a little bit right now. Cause I've just had so many amazing messages from people that have seen the film, but, um, Instagram it's Scott Lindgren. I think it's underscore, um, oh. Yeah. I'll put a link in there. Me, for... Find me there. I'm on. I'm on Facebook as well. Both both the social social media platforms. I'm terrible at it, but yeah, that's an easy way to get me. Awesome. Well, thank you, Scott. Final question of the day for you: What is your definition of awesome? Definition of awesome. Uh, any day on the river, pretty much is my definition of awesome. Yeah. Any any. I, I don't know. I love skiing. I love surfing. I love kayaking. So. I love riding my bike as, as long as I'm doing one of those four things. That's that, that, that makes me happy. I love hanging out with my girlfriend. She's amazing. That truly is awesome. Well, again, thank you so very much for your time, Scott. Thank you for your vulnerability, for sharing this truly inspiring story, um, for all that you do for everyone out there in the world and, and everything that you've shared. I applaud you. I, say thank you. And again, for anybody out there, I encourage you guys to check out the film. Um, go buy a shirt from Scott, please help him along with his journey too. I am certainly going to go buy a couple pieces of clothing. And uh, for anybody else out there that got value out of this podcast, please share this out with a, with a friend, with a family member, throw it up on your social media, just help us uh, share this message out with more people. So thank you all for tuning in. I'm Nick Troutman signing off. Wishing you all an awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.